National Capital Bible Church. So let's start with a word of prayer and utilize 1 John 1 9, or also known as the rebound technique, so that we can get back into fellowship. Let's pause for a moment of silence and then I'll open with prayer. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to assemble together as believers in Christ. We know that this is critical for the spiritual life. And so I pray now that we would lay those things aside that might be vying for our attention so that we can focus on Thee and focus on the information tonight. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're on the blood of Christ, part two. That is page 12. So let's turn, if you have your booklets or PDF, Turn to page 12. I'm going to read some of this and make comments, and we'll also look into the Bible. Page 13, we're looking at number one, then we're going to look at number two, or actually number three, and then I'll comment on number nine. So first, number one, <clears throat> the author says the term the blood of Christ is used in the New Testament, or the term blood of Christ as used in the New Testament as a comprehensive figure of speech which encompasses not only Jesus' physical sufferings but also his spiritual sacrifice. And so I'd like to make a few additions to the idea of the blood of Christ since this is important. Number one, the blood of Christ, figurative biblical language that represents the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So it's a figurative language. As I mentioned last week, it's a, what's called a metonymy. Metonymy. And we're also going to look at another term in just a moment so that we can compare the two. But for now, let me just read some notes that I have regarding the blood of Christ. It's his substitutionary spiritual death when we think of the blood of Christ. The technical phrase, blood of Christ, sets up an analogy between the physical death of Old Testament sacrificial animals and the spiritual death of Christ on the cross. And I kind of mentioned that last week as well. So in Israel's ritual sacrifices, the shedding of animal blood was a visual aid for teaching the substitutionary sacrifice of the prophesied Messiah. So since blood is the seat of life for an animal, as taken from Leviticus 17.11, the innocent animal's blood was an apt representation of a life given on behalf of others. So animal sacrifices were the shadow of good things to come which is the reality which would be fulfilled at the cross by Jesus Christ. You find this in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, and 10 and 1. In fact, let's turn there for a moment. It's always good to open the Bible. So Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. 9, 11. Actually, it's 11 through 12. But let's just go look at Hebrews 9. Yes, let me read it for the recording. But Christ came, I'm looking at Hebrews 9, 11. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. 
that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So that's also in addition to what we've seen in Pastor Gene's material here. And also, it's the idea of to pay the penalty for mankind's sins. Christ had to die spiritually, not physically. Sometimes we think of his spirit, physical death as paying the payment, but actually it's his spiritual death that was required to um, appease the wrath of God as a substitute for us. This substitutionary spiritual death, which is the figurative blood of Christ, opens the door to salvation for anyone who would simply believe in him. We see support for this in Ephesians 2, 12 to 13. Furthermore, because the figurative blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, believers can simply name their post-salvation sins privately to the Father and be forgiven, which is what we champion here as per 1 John 1, 9. So, that was some of the things I wanted to add to point number one. Let's look at point number three. There's something here that I wanted to pull out um, as I was looking at this that I thought would be appropriate for this section on the blood of Christ. He points out in point number three, in the telling of Gethsemane, Mark uses three words in, found in Mark 13. 14, 32 to 34, that speak of the terrible dread that fell on him unto death, or as far as death. So you see those words, unto death or as far as death. But I want to take, our, take us there for just a moment so that we can see what was a part of this section here in Mark 14. So it's one book over past Matthew. Look at Mark 14. We're really turning and using our Bibles tonight. Mark 14. We're going to look at 32 to 34. 32 says the following. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. Who took Peter, James, and John with him? Jesus Christ. So please notice, he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Isn't that what we saw in John 11? Right? He was deeply distressed. He was agonizing. Right? So here we have it again. But... He took Peter, James, and John, who happens to be his closest of disciples. That was close to Jesus Christ. He took those three, and he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So what I wanted to draw from this, these two verses is that he had a, an inner circle. Did you notice that? He had an inner circle with him. So sometimes it's important to note that 
it would be appropriate to have an inner circle for ourselves, which is why I think a church family is critical. So once we establish the church, as far as the fellowship is concerned and the rapport among the believers, I think we will be mirroring what Jesus just communicated and conveyed here. Because he took with him three, three men with him, so that he can do what? Pray. I mean, he's, we're talking about, what does it say? He said in verse 33, he began to be troubled and distressed. Deeply distressed, actually. I missed the word deeply. He was deeply bothered. He was deeply troubled. This is the Son of God, God the Son, second person of the Trinity. So here he was. He brought along three men and said, stay here and pray. Stay here. Well, actually, his words were, sit here while I pray. Right? 32. 33 says he took Peter, James, and John with him. And then shortly after that, he began to be troubled. And distressed, deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. So he's just not communicating this to anyone. These are the three men that he's counting on. The three disciples that he's been mentoring. But he's established such rapport with them that he was able to open up and say, look, I'm deeply distressed. I'm deeply troubled. After the fact that he could do anything, he's proven to them that he could feed thousands at a time, walk on water, and yet here's the man of God, the son of God, who says, look, I'm deeply distressed. Oh, I thought you were raising your hand. So the son of God was showing his humanity. We know that he's 100% God, 100% man. But if we are Christian, Christ-like, We should be observant of his humanity. And so my point is that sometimes we should get together with other people. I think we establish this especially during the men's prayer breakfast. I really look forward to that because that's the time that we come together and just voice out our concerns for our our country, the needs of each other. But I'm saying this because it happens to be Point number three of this manual called Basic Training Field Manual. It's a field manual for those of us who are out there in the field. We're all believers in Christ, ambassadors of Christ, disciples of Christ. This is part of the directive. This is part of the directive. We won't see this unless we we comb through this slowly and surely. You know, he has all these points, right? I'm not going to read each of these points. But I would hope that you guys would at least familiarize yourself with these points because would you say that Pastor Gene is out in the field? Oh, yeah. So he knows. He certainly knows what it would take to be able to stand against the assaults of those who are against the gospel, the grace message. So he knows firsthand what it's all about. And these are proven doctrines that are designed to empower us. Not so that we can just rub shoulders. Hey, bro, how are you doing? It's not about that. It's about looking and learning from the master himself. What did he do here? He was not ashamed to weep in John 11. 
He was not ashamed to say, you guys come with me. I want you to be here. Sit and pray. When was the last time we asked someone to do that? When was the last time we were even with someone? Or are we too kind of aloof? Are we being more like Christ when we're aloof? I don't think so. So I look at these things. The truth is, look, let's be honest. Do we know these doctrines? Yes, we do, right? It's nothing that you don't know already. However, I found out that since we've been ta- I've been teaching through phase two, I'm noticing that if we slow it down and put the brakes on, we're going to discover that the things that we thought we knew maybe are not there embedded in our souls, right? Because when I saw this, I said, okay, what's the big deal? He was at Gethsemane. So I went to the references, and I discovered here's God the Son who can do anything, and we're about to see him raise someone from the dead. And at this juncture, he's saying, come with me, these three men. Sit here and pray. To me, that's like a revelation because it gave me insight into the life of Christ. And if we're sitting here saying, oh yeah, phase two, oh yeah, I'm a believer in Christ, oh yeah, I'm a disciple of Christ, please notice this. This is not fabricated. In, in fact, this is not a part of the book only. This is a part of the scriptures that you have open on your desk right now. So if you can paraphrase this, Theron, what would you say? I, I'm sorry, I'm picking on you, but what would you say about this verse that we just saw? What stands out regarding Mark, Mark 14, 32 to 34? Great observation, Scott. Excellent. But see... You can see, now that we're slowing it down, applying the brakes a little bit, there are certain things here that reveal to us how patient and gracious he is towards the people who follow him, right? And so we're supposed to learn from him. Is he not the master? So when we see shortcomings of the disciples, we can compensate and say, well, you know what, we can tell Jesus wasn't pleased with that move. So we can make adjustments. So we can certainly learn from the mistakes of those who went before us. But it's really loaded with a lot of information here. And I just wanted to bring this out because sometimes we see something where Jesus is wanting us to be with him. And yet we kind of drop the ball. And like Scott said, we don't even know. We don't have the foggiest idea at times, you know, what he's attempting to do. So... Now, one last thing I wanted to look at was um, the bottom of page 13. We're looking at the significance of the blood of Christ. And I'm, believe me, I'm going to pull this together. I'm going to talk about some things that are worthwhile. I, I wish I had my slides working or at least the mirroring here. I have someone online saying all they can see is the blue balloons. I'm not sure what the blue balloons are, but... Is there blue? Oh, that's the background of this. Okay. Yeah, for those who are online, we are apologize for the technical difficulties. We're not able to show the slides tonight. So next week, we'll make sure it's working better. Gladys, Marsha, Marty, Rudy, Steve, Karen, welcome. So if you weren't here earlier, we just did not have... Um, 
the mirroring effect working, so we apologize for that. That's why you can see the balloons, not that we're giving them to you, but just want you to see something outside from my face. So anyways, point number nine, let's go there really quickly, and I have something that I wanted to just say, and then we're going to go back into what I really wanted to talk about with regards to the using of Christ's blood as a metonymy. So point number nine on the booklet on page 13, the author, the author says the following. <clears throat> Peter tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die and to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. If you have your Bibles, just turn to 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24 says the following. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So we must remember Jesus not only died because we are sinners, meaning we have a sin nature, but he also died for our sins, plural. Every sin we ever committed or will commit, that was nailed on the cross. So think of the sin nature as a car factory. I'm going to give you a little illustration here. Think of the sin nature as a car factory. And when he died on the cross... Christ judged the factory, but he also judged the cars that came from the factory. So our individual sins, which is equivalent to or likened to our individual sins. So notice the purpose clause here. The reason he, was di- he has died so that we might live for righteousness. You see that there in 1 Peter 2.24? He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So the word that is the clause that tells us that we might do this, which is to live to righteousness for by his wounds or that we might die to sin and live righteousness. 1 Peter 2, 24. I'm sorry, I'm shifting back and forth from my Bible and my notes since I it's not completely what I was thinking tonight, but no problem. We are still going to get through this. So again, let me just say this and see if I'll make sense here. So <clears throat> because we are sinners, we have a sin nature, right? We, we know that as a fact. He also died for our sins. And so, let me see if I can say this correctly. Every wrong we ever committed or will commit has been covered. So think of the sin nature as a car factory. And when he died on the cross, Christ judged the factory, but he also judged the cars that came from the factory, our individual sins. So we have this purpose now, having died to sin, 
we might live for righteousness. So his purpose for dying for us is that we might live for righteousness. We might live for him. That's important for us to know. So we're talking about the blood of Christ, which, remember, I had said it represents what? Spiritual death. What did I say last week about his blood? Does, is there anything magical in the blood? No, nothing, right? So now let me talk about a, uh, the different, using the blood of Christ as a metonymy, which is what I used last week, and a synecdoche. There's something called the synecdoche versus a metonymy. There's a metonymy and a synecdoche. And so the best way I can try to explain this, the differences, is to give you a definition and to use the blood of Christ as an example. So I'm going to use the blood of Christ as an example for a metonymy and a synecdoche. They're very, very similar, but they also have slight differences. So as a metonymy, we know that it's used to represent or symbolize something else, another. So again, a metonymy is one thing used to represent or symbolize another. So now I'm going to use the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ as a metonymy. That means that the blood represents the fact that Jesus died a violent death. Everybody knows this who went to third grade, right? Oh, this is kind of a grammar thing that we have to go back many, many of years. I had to confirm this with uh, Dr. John Mimola. He is our, he was our language prop in Schaefer. So I wanted to make sure I was getting this clear, but I'm still going around in my head in circles. So I wrote it down. Metonymy using the shed blood of Jesus Christ means that the blood represents the fact that Jesus died a violent death. So, for example, when Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he meant that he caused Jesus, who was innocent, to die through the shedding of his blood. So, now a synecdoche. That's spelled S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E for those online and trying to write this down. Synecdoche, similar to a metonymy. Metonymy, by the way, is M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. So a metonymy is one thing used to represent or symbolize another. A synecdoche, on the other hand, is a figure of speech where a part is used to represent the whole. In this case, the shed blood of Jesus Christ can be seen as a synecdoche because it represents his entire body. It signifies his sacrifice and the shedding of the, his blood as a part of the whole act of his death. So using the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ as a metonymy once again represents his violent death. And understanding it as a synecdoche highlights that the blood represents his whole body and the sacrifice he made. Right, Rick? 
So as if that's not confusing enough, there are four kinds of metonymy. Four kinds. Number one, metonymy of cause for effect. Cause for effect. This happens when something represents the cause and the effect. For example, when we say they have Moses, it means they have his books. Remember that in the Luke 16? Um, the parable uh, or the story of the rich man and the beggar? Lazarus who died. And Lazarus, uh, Lazarus said, um, have him go see my brothers. And, and Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Remember that? So, they have Moses means that they have his books because Moses is the cause he wrote them and his books are the effect. That's called the metonymy of cause for effect. That's number one. Number two, there's another metonymy of effect for cause. Here something is used to represent the effect and the cause. An example is when we say two nations are in your womb. It means that the two babies inside the womb will grow up and become separate nations. That is the metonymy of effect for cause. Number three, metonymy of the subject for the adjunct. Metonymy of the subject for the adjunct. This occurs when something represents the subject for the adjunct. For instance, when we say they knew they were naked. Remember that? Genesis 3. They knew they were naked. It means that they were aware that they didn't have clothes and felt embarrassed. That's the metonymy of the subject for the adjunct. Now there's one last one, the metonymy of the adjunct for the subject. This type of metonymy uses something to represent the adjunct and the subject. An example is, they will bring down (laughs) my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Here the gray hairs symbolize the person's old age. See, so that's a mouthful. Four metonymies and a synecdoche. All this to say, when we're interpreting scripture and looking at the word of God, we must know when there is things that are metaphorical, allegorical, metonymy, and synecdoche. And so it's important to, we're not going to memorize and go through every verse and say, is this a metonymy? But when you start to see things that are not can't be taken literal, then we can default to some of these things that we looked at, right? I mean, we talked about <clears throat> they knew they were naked. Where did that where did that come from? Or um, two nations are in your womb. Where's that from? The two babies. That's right. They were warring on the inside. So that is the metonymy of cause for effect. 
or effect for cause, I'm sorry. It's something used to represent the effect and cause and examples when we say two nations are in your womb, which is exactly what you said. That is the metonymy of cause for effect. Now, are you saying that in your head when you're reading that? Probably not. But is it nice to know in the background, should you need it? Yes. That's called being a student of the word. So that when you're studying the scriptures, it's not just blasting through. You're saying, well, what does that mean? They're warring on the inside. So now you could say that's not taking place literally at the moment, but figuratively down the road, they are going to split and they're going to be as odd as possible and they're going to be mad at each other. Right? So these are things that will be helpful. And besides, what did I use this for to begin with? The blood of Christ. When we talk about the blood of Christ, is it his blood that was spilled outside that was efficacious? Are we to stand there in, in the cross if we were there to catch his blood in a basin? Is there anything magical about that? No. And yet, there are systems of faith out there that say it is. They will look at... Um, Jesus, I was talking with my father-in-law, right, Pa? Where there are people in the Philippines that do this with some of the churches back there. It's magical to them. They would, have, they would, they would look forward to touching the cross, touching Jesus. And sometimes these ceramic uh, images have blood coming out of their eyes or coming off their ankles. And so it's borderline, I would even say cultic, not border, cultic. So if these things are happening, we have to be on our game, on top of our game to be say to be able to say, no, I don't think that's to be taken literally. There's nothing magical about his blood. The blood represents what? What do you think, Austin? What does the spiritual death or his person, his life, right? Simple words. It represents Jesus, Jesus Christ. Colonel Thiem talked about this a lot. He talked about how it's not representative of just the blood. It's not the red corpuscles that would leak from his skin. There's nothing magical about that. It was his life that, rep that meant the world, that meant everything. It was not the blood. It was nothing magical about the blood. If we were there, touching his blood wouldn't have done anything at all. And yet, how many of you have heard this before? And it's not a knock against those who've said this, if you're online or you know but know people, but it just requires us to be astute when it comes to the scripture. How many times have you heard people of another system of faith say, we plead the blood? We plead the blood. Have you heard that before? Yes. We plead the blood. We're going to pray, plead the blood on my car. He's going to travel for a few hundred miles. Lord Jesus, we plead the blood. We plead the blood on the airplane. Have you heard that before? That's actually what is taking place in a lot of systems of faith, which is why as students of the word, we have to be able to interpret what it means. Is the blood of Christ miraculous? No. His life is in total, not his blood. What it stood for, what it means. Okay. So we have this book, part one and part two. All very important. 
But when you bottom line the blood of Christ, what does that mean for us who are Bible-believing, doctrinal-believing church, a church? Those online, doctrinally oriented, what does it mean when we talk about the blood of Christ? It's his saving work of Christ on the cross. That is proper. That is appropriate to ascribe the blood of Christ on the cross, on his person, because it's his shed blood that was able to represent his entire life. That means he died. And as Austin would say several times tonight, it represented his spiritual death, not his physical death. He died physically, but it was his spiritual death that appeased the wrath of God. But the physical death included the spilling of the blood. But the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. Because that, he knew, he knew we were going to have this study tonight. That's, what. That's fantastic that you guys have this opportunity to impact young kids. Go ahead, Scott. That's right, he did not. What it represents, that's correct. When did he die? When was the work finished? Well, the question is, when did he actually finish the work? When was that? How did, is there a way to determine when on the cross the payment for sins were... Okay, okay. To tell to tell us die. That's right. He said, it is finished. At that juncture, all sins were paid for. When the work was finished, he was still alive. Right? So he was still alive and all the sins were paid for. Past, present, future. But why do we use 1 John 1, 9 then? I know you guys know this. If all sins were paid for, past, present, and future, well, why 1 John 1, 9? Okay, very good. Real and judicial, we're going to be covering that in the future. Very good. So, for us as believers, why do we still have to confess if God... Phase 2. Notice how we're using phase 2 more? It's always phase 2. That's right. Phase 2. That's right. Phase two, post-salvifics, post-salvation, right? So we now have a familial responsibility with God the Father. So after we were saved, phase one, we have the responsibility of living in, living in phase two. And as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us. Remember, we saw that last week. The blood of Christ cleanses us as we what? As we confess our sins, but as we're walking in the light. So there's that cleansing effect phase two. Not not that it stops in phase one. As we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, the life of Christ, salvifically speaking, saves us. We don't have to worry about the blood of Christ then because we've been saved, past, present, future. However, when you look at 1 John chapter 1, there is that purifying, cleansing effect. Let's go there really quickly, since we have 10 minutes anyways. First John chapter 1. Let's look at... Uh, Austin, could you read 5 to 10 with your 
bold, manly voice? Yes, sir. Very good. And seven, one more time. So that purification, that cleansing of the blood of Christ takes place when? Is that phase one or phase two? What do you think? Phase two. Phase one, yes, we've already taken care of phase one. So that now First John could be a fellowship epistle for those who are in Christ, right? So phase two, he's talking about walking in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship with one another and what? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from what? All sin, all unrighteousness. But the word here is sin. We walk in the light, but it's contingent upon what though? In order for us to get the effect of the blood of Jesus, what do we have to do? We have to walk in the light. So what does it mean to walk in the light? Okay, regain the fellowship. What else? What do you see, Austin? Is that what it says? doesn't say that. Remember, observe the text. See what's there. See what's not there. It doesn't say that. We know we're supposed to love God. We know we're supposed to obey his commands. But what does it say we need to do in order for the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all sin? Don't we want all our sins to be cleansed? Yes, we. 1 John 1, 9, we rebound. But what about verse 7? If we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't we want that? What do we have to do to have that? Right there underneath your noses. Observe, observe, observe. What is there? What's not there? I want all my sins. I want Jesus Christ to cleanse me from all sin. I know 1 John 1, 9 is true. But what do I have to do to get application to verse 7? Because that's what I want right now. Okay, walk in the light. What What does it mean to walk in the light? Okay, love God and keep his commandments. That's one aspect. That's right. Good job, Austin. Where's that found? You're right. Okay, go to verse 9. And just to answer Austin, he, he's right. It's John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, obey me. And verse 9, Scott, what does it say? Okay, very Okay, very good. Can't have the relationship. Very good. Okay. So nine helps us apply verse seven. Okay. Very good. Now let's go and look at what verse seven says slowly. If we walk in the light, that's conditional. If we do, maybe we will, maybe we won't. If we walk in the light as who is in the light? You? Well, let's make sure. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. His son. Whose son? Ah, his, the father. So if we walk in the light as God the father is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Who's the one another? God the father and us. Vertical relationship. But... We must walk in the light. Why? Because he's there. 
But what is the light? We know one thing, that's where God the Father is. As we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. It's a vertical relationship with him, which then will turn out to be a horizontal relationship with each other. But in order for us to have a relationship horizontally, we must first have a vertical relationship with God the Father. And the way to establish that is we walk in the light because he is there in the light. And we have fellowship with one another or with him. And when we do, he says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And it's true, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, verse 7 seems to be talking about something slightly different. Because if you look at, look at it slowly, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So what we have to determine is, where do we have to walk? Where do we find God the Father? Because he's there in the light as he is in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, one another. And when we, when we have fellowship with him, Jesus Christ, his son, is in the background cleansing us with his blood. You see that? So notice one thing. We have uh, two minutes here. Verse 5. This message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is what? God is, verse 5, God is light. So part of his essence is that he is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So if we say that we have fellowship with who? God the Father. And walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, he is in the truth. He's in doctrine. If we go there and meet him there where he is, we have fellowship with him. And when we do, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us. So as we're getting into doctrine, as we're getting into his word, Jesus Christ is in the background cleansing us with what? His blood. So where do we have to walk to find God the Father? Bible doctrine, His Word, Scripture, Holy Writ. It's all there. That's where we will find God the Father. And when we are focused on the Word, Jesus Christ is in the background cleansing us with His blood. So the phase two aspect of His blood comes to to life when we're walking in the truth, when we're walking in the light. Because God the Father's there studying with us. God the Holy Spirit is there illuminating the truth, enabling us. And Jesus Christ's blood in the background is purifying, our, uh, purifying us from sin. So then we get to verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you get the sense that he wants us to be holy? Do you get the sense that he wants us to be pure? Righteous, we got double security here. 
We've got the purifying effect of Jesus Christ as we're in the Word, as we're in the light, as we're in doctrine. And God the Father is there. Jesus Christ is cleansing us. And then when God the Holy Spirit illuminates the areas that we need to address before Him, we confess it. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In taking the word. Yeah, in taking his word. Because you're, if you're walking in the light, you're in the truth. If you have a, a moment sin, you're in darkness. But God has nothing to do with that darkness. No. Yeah. So that's what. Very good. Walking in the truth. That's right. And we do have those moments where we will sin. In fact, isn't that what we say in verse 8? We see that in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And not only that, uh, Scott, can you read verse 6? So we're not in truth if we are walking in darkness. So if we're backsliding, we're in reversionism, we're walking in darkness, and we're saying we have fellowship. Oh, yeah, how are you doing, Austin? Oh, everything's good. And if, I'm, if I say, Darren, how are you doing? And, I, and he says, I'm all good. How about you, Freddie? Huh? Well, yeah, it's all good. And in fact, I'm walking in darkness. I'm lying. If we say we're okay, we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we're not practicing what? The truth. It's already there. All there just for the read. See? So this is really dense, just this book alone. All this to say that when we think about the blood of Christ, um, we looked at part one and part two. The abiding aspect of the blood and the part two where we're talking about the all that he has done to accomplish what we currently steward. That's huge. And we saw how, in closing, how Jesus Christ himself, his humanity, sought after three men to be there by his side. So there's this inner circle, and it seems to suggest that there are going to be times where we'll need a friend or two, or at least three, to be there to back you up, even if it's just a time of prayer. And so we can have friends to pull together and say, hey, stay here for for a little bit while I go pray. And you see that in the life of Christ. And so as such, we we should follow suit. And I think that's why I'm seeing the National Capital Bible Church is really starting to pop now lately. It's really starting to just take on new life, at least from my perspective. Having been here for a little over a year now, I'm just seeing that this, we're seeing growth in ways that we haven't seen before. So we're great. We should be grateful for that. So having said that, let's close in a word of prayer. Unless anybody has any thoughts, comments, questions. Okay, well, let's close in prayer and then we'll do this uh, again next week and hopefully next week we should have this dialed in. So I apologize for those online. Uh, We look forward to seeing you again next week or Sunday if you're local. So let's pray. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to assemble together, to inculcate Bible doctrines so that we can be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us now to not just be hearers, but to be doers of your word. We've looked at a lot of things, even terminology, metonymy, synecdoche. And Father, we're not here to impress each other with terms or anything like that, definitions, but we're just doing this to know you more and have a greater appreciation for the things that you have done 
on our behalf. Help us to be students of your word through the agency of God, the Holy Spirit, as we go positive and as we make impact in our periphery. I trust that people would come to faith, come to Christ, so that they too can have life everlasting because of who you are and what you've bestowed upon the world through the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who settled it all on the cross. The issue then is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.